The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Born by the roadside in a broken down carriage, came into life on the run. Found on the doorstep of a nearby orphanage, no one saw. No. By giving us the opinions of the uneducated, journalism keeps us in touch with the ignorance of the community. Oscar Wilde. In the spring of 1991, Peoria Journal Star reporter Lori Tim covered an annual event in Canton, Illinois, writing an article with the headline, Views on Shoot Are Mixed. While a few Fulton County residents joined a protest against a live pigeon shoot Thursday, Others said Donald Holfold's annual contest is no reason to get up in arms. I think most people around here feel the same. If it is legal, and if you don't like it, you should change the law, said Janet Lauber, a waitress at Four Seasons Bowl, just south of Holford's farm. I've talked to many people from all over the United States who came here for it, and they all said how professional and well-run it is, Lauber said. Some people said protecting pigeons is, in fact, aiding a nuisance. Eheas Lala of Springfield, who used to operate a small chicken farm, says he considers pigeons pests that contaminate livestock feed. Do the protesters realize what kind of germs they carry? Lala said as he stopped for lunch at Hardee's. I have no problem with the method of the pigeon shoot. I wouldn't be unhappy if they eradicated those birds from the face of the earth or sent them all to Japan. I'd be happy to help, he said. Gail Dorenzi, owner of Gail's Lounge at First and Elm, said he welcomes anything that helps keep the birds away from the town square. We have quite a problem here with them roosting, he said. Dorenzi said he has in the past put a substance pigeons supposedly don't like on the eaves, and he has, at times, lit firecrackers to scare the birds away. That doesn't work, they just come right back, he said. But two women said they agree with animal rights activists protesting the event, and they joined the vigil at Times Thursday. I believe in animal rights and just stopped by to give assistance, said Roberta Oliver of Farmington, who had been driving on Illinois Route 78 with her husband Orville. I think this demonstration is something that should have happened a long time ago. Carla Murray of Canton, a biology student at Western Illinois University, who works at Kmart in Canton, came to carry a sign in the early afternoon. She said she learned of the pigeon shoot a few years ago after spotting wounded birds near an animal hospital about one quarter mile south of Holford's land. I'd like to see the shoot outlawed completely, she said. I used to work at Spoon River Animal Center, and I can never figure out why sometimes we would see pigeons with broken wings and holes in them. As controversial as this piece may have been to some, it was one of a long series of drudge work journalists often find themselves digging into, trying to find that dramatic flair human interest pieces tend to lack, or in this case, Pigeon interest. 
But what the expose had revealed was the standard sort of news a rural hamlet like Canton, a community of 14,000, set in the heart of an agrarian county, tends to make of those back pages of the Journal Star, a newspaper based out of Peoria, a city of 150,000, whose own news is more saturated with the violence that tends to make the front page headline. But by the winter of 91, Lori Tim would return to Fulton County to cover a story with a tad more flair. Headline, Jury Hears Alleged Confession on Tape. Man was coerced into admitting he raped wife. The December 13th article stated, Lewistown, a woman who has accused her estranged husband of rape secretly recorded his confession while police officers hid in the house, a Fulton County jury heard Thursday. Donald R. Bull, 28 of Canton, told the woman he was afraid she had set a trap for him, according to a tape made during his March 27th visit to a Canton residence. You could be setting me up. There could be five cops right downstairs, he said. There were two officers in the lower level laundry room with electronic surveillance equipment for a court-approved eavesdrop, the woman testified at Bull's trial. He is charged with aggravated criminal sexual assault for allegedly forcing his wife to have sex on March 26th when the couple, who were handling their divorce without attorneys, met at his house to settle finances. The next day the woman, 27, asked him to come to look over the divorce papers at her mother's home after she made arrangements with the police to tape record the conversation, she testified. Jurors followed a transcript as they listened to the tape late Thursday. The conversation began reluctantly, as Bull said he was afraid he and the woman weren't alone in the house. At different points on the tape, he said he thought the woman was wired and bugged, centering on the woman's demands for an apology for the incident. While Bull avoided using the word rape, he apparently said he was sorry for what had happened yesterday. You can't even look at me and tell me that you raped me, the woman told Bull. I just won't admit to anything without a lawyer present, he responded. Included was Bull's explanation that the incident was an act of retribution for his wife's sudden decision to leave him. But he also said he wanted to have sex with her before the divorce became final because he still loved her, which led to an apology after the woman continued to demand one. Alright, I'm sorry I raped you, alright, he said. Yes, I do feel ashamed, but it's something I have to live with. Defense attorney Thomas Moss said that his client was coerced and made the remarks only to appease the woman. He said the couple's sex on March 26th was consensual, just as it was on March 25th when they had intercourse in a car near Banner. The woman said she had agreed to the act because Bull said he would sign the divorce papers the following day. She testified under questioning by Assistant State's Attorney Hugh Toner. The woman testified that she arrived at Bull's house about noon on March 26th to discuss outstanding bills and to finalize the divorce arrangements. She thought Bull was kidding when he said they were going to have sex one last time. The woman told jurors, Bull dragged her from the kitchen to the bedroom, where he ordered her to remove her clothes, she said. Yeah, I finally gave in. I know what he's capable of. And I knew he could hurt me, she testified. The woman said she removed her blouse, but Bull undressed her completely after he forced her onto the bed. After the alleged rape, the woman fought to leave the house, and then went to her mother's workplace in Canton. In the company of her mother, she went to the Fulton County Woman's Crisis Service and then to the emergency room at Graham Hospital where she called the police, the woman testified. Under cross-examination, the woman denied Moss's claim that she invented a rape story to punish Bull for failing to sign the divorce papers. She testified that she did whatever she could to force Bull to admit the rape and agreed that she used lies, threats, and false promises. 
The purpose of that taped confession was a trick Donald Bull into admitting that he raped you, wasn't it? Moss asked. Yes, the woman answered. There was no doubt Donnie Bull, a man with a disturbing criminal record, guilty of a 1983 conviction for aggravated battery, felt there was little more he could do, nor his lawyer, who had indeed swung for the fences in his defense, as the trial wrapped up and the evidence had been given, and he and his ex-wife had both taken the stand, both having given their accounts of the events which transpired. The prosecution and then the defense had made their closing speeches trying to convince the jury of their respective cases. The judges summed it up meaning he went over the facts of the case and told a jury of peers, very much like yourselves, about the relevant law. The judge had also advised before they retired to the jury room to discuss the case and think about their comments as carefully as judges or lawyers with years of experience might. Inside the jury room, jurors discussed the case by carefully considering the evidence presented by all witnesses, the arguments of the defense and prosecution, no outside communication was allowed except the jury keepers, the judge had warned them. Any offense by a juror would have been punishable with a fine or imprisonment if a juror had told anyone about any statements, opinions, arguments, or votes made by any other jury members while they were considering the case. If the jury encountered any problems while discussing the case amongst themselves, they would have contacted the judge through jury keepers for guidance. If no jury decision had been made by the end of the day, the jury would have been brought back into the courtroom, and the judge would have reminded them that they should not talk to anyone about the case. They would then be formally released until the following morning. The following day, the jury would have been called into the courtroom and asked to go into the jury room. But this had not occurred during Donnie's 1991 trial, not yet at least, and neither Moss nor Donnie's minds could focus on anything else but the impending verdict. Would they, the jury, believe Donnie or his ex-wife? Only time would tell. Time ticking painfully along. While Donnie sat in his clockless holding cell, and Thomas Moss in the courtroom amongst conversations filled with awkward banalities that failed to recognize the elephant in the room, each minute indeed seemed like hours. Donnie most likely paced in circles within his cage. His freedom was at stake after all. And at the same time, Moss may have been analyzing what the amount of time would mean for the potential verdict. Even though he knew the result could be announced in a matter of minutes, and that he was only a court-appointed public defender, his mind most likely kicked into overdrive. It would not have mattered who was the lawyer or defendant at this point. It also didn't matter if this was his first or 100th jury trial. The adrenaline was undoubtedly there. As Moss sat in the courtroom waiting for the jury to return with Donnie's verdict, waiting for the knock, had he found himself searching for various ways to calm his nerves? Within the confines of the holding cell, had Donnie chewed his nails to the cuticles? As Moss certainly made things worse, anxiously thinking of all the questions he wished he would have asked. 
An increase of stress would have also switched his thoughts to ponder all the questions he should not have asked. Knowing a good lawyer should never ask a question to which he did not already know the answer. Had he, he wondered? Perhaps he asked questions he didn't really care what the answer was. Or maybe he had done it to make a point. And if he had, he certainly hoped that that was the case. Sometimes a question is asked and the answer is different than expected, even with friendly witnesses. And suddenly a fear of all those moments might have come back to mind. Should I not have asked that question? Should I have asked it differently? Moss likely continued to badger his own mind, though it didn't matter at that point. But surely he could not keep from doing so anyway. I see Donnie so clearly plopping down, standing, sitting again in his cell, as Moss tried to distract himself, making a mental list of all the things he had not got done during the trial. The steady stream of cases he had failed to stay up to date with, all the while knowing the towering stack of paper would await his return. Had Moss worried about all the mail that had catching up to do? And what about his schedule, though he may have learned long ago not to make any decisions about his calendar, commitments, or strategies on other matters while waiting on a jury? I see Moss pulling today's paper out of his briefcase, and at best, he had hoped for a glance across a few articles though nothing he read likely would be remembered once the verdict was presented. However, Moss would have kept his guard up, knowing to never let the jury see him doing anything that would make them think he wasn't focused on the case, especially when it came to the comics on the back page, which can send the wrong, silly message. Donnie, grasping onto the bars and yanking his torso back and forth, back and forth, in a white knuckle grip as Moss considered going for a walk around the courthouse, of course Moss would have quickly realized it was a terrible idea, because he would have wondered the entire time how far he could walk from the courtroom before he was needed for the verdict. Moss didn't want to miss the knock and have the jury waiting for someone to find him. This meant he was effectively chained to the courtroom until the verdict was entered. Had he next decided he could possibly go to the bathroom? However, realizing this would have been marginally acceptable only under extreme circumstances, along with dehydration, clinching the bladder a bit longer was better than missing the knock. Had he thought to clean up his trial materials? This possibly felt like this act might be an effective use of time, but surely he would have recognized that the opposing counsel was not doing the same thing. Had Moss remembered that if he tidied up too much, the prosecutor's table would look like they were still on trial and his would not? Could the jury take that as a sign that he had given up? Moss worried, no doubt. So he left his papers on the table and even made them a little messier for effect. I can see Donnie asking a guard for a cigarette, and placing it in his lips as he leaned forward to the outheld flame, as Moss, now maddened by the what-if game, shoved the crumpled up newspaper back into his briefcase and pulled out a People magazine. Gossip, that of course, was the only practical option, possibly impressing his colleagues with his insights into popular culture by using this excellent publication as a resource. And then came the knock. It had finally arrived, that ominous thump from the jury room door. As Donnie was led back into the courtroom in handcuffs, the jury was also taken back to the stage of fate. And as everyone resettled in and Donnie sat next to his lawyer, the court clerk would have asked the foreperson to deliver the verdict on each charge. The foreperson must have taken care to only answer the questions that the court clerk asked them. And when this had been done, the jury's task would have been over. But they would have sat still in the jury box until the judge told them to leave. If Donnie had been found guilty, the judge would have passed the sentence immediately. Although the judge might adjourn the case until reports were made available to the court, passing the sentence on to a different day. 
and the judge would have directed the jury about any further attendance or if they were no longer needed. As Moss's hair thinned and Donnie's heart thumped in his chest, I pondered the thoughts of his ex-wife as the jury spokesman stood and announced, Not guilty. And Donald R. Bull was acquitted of aggravated criminal sexual assault. There is no doubt in hell Moss let out a deep sigh as the courtroom gasped. And just like that, the shackles were removed from Donnie's wrists, and after pats on the back and the dropped faces of the prosecution frowned, Donnie walked away a free man. On December 14, 1991, Lori Tim wrote, Jury acquits man in Canton rape case. He testifies that his estranged wife agreed to have sex. Lewistown, a Canton woman invented a rape story after her estranged husband reneged on a sex for divorce deal, a Fulton County jury delayed Friday. Jurors acquitted Donald R. Bull, 28, of aggravated criminal sexual assault after about an hour of deliberation. The jury listened to the taped conversation in which Bull expressed remorse for raping his accuser, but the panel apparently determined the man's remarks were coerced. On March 27th, police sat in the basement of a Canton house with court-approved eavesdropping equipment, while Bull's wife, who had invited him over to discuss the impending divorce, urged him to apologize for raping her the previous day. But Bull testified in his own defense Friday, said the act was consensual sex between a couple who had continued to meet up and sleep together after their separation in February. One episode occurred the night of March 25th, when the two agreed to meet after the woman dropped an order of protection against Bull earlier that day. Bull described the evening as a date, but with a condition. She told me if we went out and had sex, that after we had sex, if I didn't sign the divorce papers, she would hand me in for rape, he testified. The woman, 27, denied that in her testimony but said the couple had agreed that Bull would sign the papers after they had consensual sex on March 25th. But she and Bull testified that day. They had intercourse that night in her car as it sat on a dirt road near Banner. It was the woman's idea to meet at his house the next morning to finalize the divorce, Bull said. He said music was playing as they sat at the kitchen table and he suggested they have sex. I made a promise to her I shouldn't have. If we had sex one last time, I'd sign the divorce papers, he said. She didn't agree or disagree. I was persistent, and eventually she did agree. The two voluntarily went to his bedroom, where each sat and smoked a cigarette as they talked about how enjoyable the previous night had been, Bull testified. The pair had consensual intercourse, he said, but they argued afterwards because he backed out of the divorce agreement. I said I wouldn't sign because I said I wanted to wait to see if we might get together. She was pretty furious at me, he said. Bull said his broken promise and his wife's threat explained why the tape conversation reflects his fear of a setup. His criminal record, a 1983 conviction for aggravated battery, also persuaded him to give his wife the apology she demanded, but he said he did it to mollify. But when Bull told the woman he was sorry he raped her, I didn't think it was going to hurt me. I didn't know there were police officers in the basement, he testified. The 
Assistant State's Attorney Hugh Toner questioned Bull about his taped comments about payback for his wife's decision to leave him. Bull said that he referred to the money being brought to the woman as compensation for the damage he had caused to her car's steering column. Answering Toner's questions, Bull admitted to threatening the woman and her family near the end of the conversation. I was intimidated and I flew off the handle, he said. Evidence also included Bull's ashtray containing two cigarettes, one each of the different brands he and the woman smoke. Jurors also saw a towel that Bull said he placed on the bed before the couple had sex there, which helped lead to the acquittal. But what is an acquittal? By definition, a judgment that a person is not guilty of the crime with which the person has been charged, as opposed to guilty. Definition, culpable of or responsible for a specified wrongdoing. And what of that past criminal record? That 1983 conviction for aggravated battery, for which the young Donnie Bull spent the first half of his 20s in a prison cell after attacking his sister-in-law from a previous marriage at Oaklawn Apartments where she lived. Oaklawn Apartments was an 80-unit affordable housing community in Canton, Illinois. The low-income housing complex on the skirts of the southeastern part of town, off on its own beyond a sizable grassy knoll where the annual Friendship Festival continues to take place every fall, the complex is situated in a semi-industrial area. The apartments at Oaklawn once mainly served as starter homes for young families. At that time, in the early 80s, before Oaklawn had begun to gather a tattered reputation for domestic violence, drugs, and a daily rashing of calls to the police. In the wee hours of February 27, 1983, one of those calls led officers to a man who appeared out of his mind, who had terribly beaten a woman who had been found earlier in hysterics fleeing her captor, as she cried out for help in sheer panic, hair matted in an ooze of blood. And the 20-year-old Donnie Bull, in that drug and alcohol-fueled rage, was handcuffed after a brief brawl, carted off to jail, convicted, and sentenced for that five-year sentence the maximum time allotted for aggravated battery. Now eight years later, and only three since Donnie's release from prison, the date, March 24, 1993, emits another investigation into Donnie Bull. At around 11 a.m., Canton Police Sergeant and lead detective on the Tompkins case David Ayers paid a visit to Miss Rochelle Hillmeyer's home, as she had no phone, in order to speak with her regarding the case after learning that she was the girlfriend of Donnie Bull. Rochelle told Sergeant Ayers that during the evening before the fire, Donnie and his buddy David Nell had been at her house playing cards, but had left in her car sometime after midnight to take Nell home. And was Mike Price present that night? asked Sergeant Ayers. No, Mike was not there, said Rochelle. Are you certain? Positive, said Rochelle. So you say Donnie left after midnight? Sometime between midnight and two, but it would have been no later than two, said Rochelle. She said that Donnie had not returned until about 10 a.m. the following morning of January the 13th, 1993, with the excuse he had gotten a flat tire on her car he had borrowed while in the 300 block of South 2nd Avenue near Bork's scrapyard. Rochelle claimed that Donnie had told her he had attempted to change the tire, but that the jack slipped out and caused an injury to his leg. Donnie had said he then fell asleep in the car for the rest of the night. He said that when he awoke at sunrise, he repaired the tire and then returned to Rochelle's home, 
adding Donnie did not go to work that day of Wednesday the 13th. Rochelle also mentioned that Donnie had told her that he had sold Donna Tompkins a couch and delivered it at nighttime, that a key had been left in the mailbox for the delivery, and that he had returned the key as he went. How well do you believe Donnie and Donna knew one another? asked Sergeant Ayers. Not very well, I don't think, said Rochelle, who also told Sergeant Ayers, when asked, that there were no extra heaters at her home that required any type of fuel, stating, I don't even have a gas can. Two ten p.m. Sergeant Ayers again spoke with Iona Price, a close friend and co-worker of Donna Tompkins, at her home about the case. Iona stated that Donnie and Donna were attracted to one another, and Iona said that what she meant was that she felt that when she saw them together, they seemed to look at each other like they were interested in dating. Iona then backtracked when asked and said that Donnie had sold Donna a couch for $100 and delivered it that last fall adding that Donnie had the key for one full day. Iona also stated that her husband, Mike Price, had told her that Donnie always seems to miss work after these incidents, such as Donna's fire. What do you mean by these incidents? asked Sergeant Ayers. Well, you know, Donnie has a reputation with women, said Iona. Iona added that Donnie, though dating Rochelle, also has a girlfriend he sees on the side, adding that Mike had told her to tell Donna to never be alone with Donnie. Mike doesn't trust him, she said. Sergeant Ayers left but returned to the Price residence at 4.30pm to speak with Iona's husband, Mike, about these comments. Mike told Sergeant Ayers that when working with Donnie at Wright's Furniture, he never really liked or trusted Donnie. I'd heard rumors about the way Donnie treated women, and I sure didn't want him around my wife or kids. Mike stated that it seemed like each time an incident occurred in town involving an attack or abuse of a female, Donnie would miss work the next day. For example, Mike said, the day after the time he supposedly attacked two ladies at knife point, Donnie missed work and also shaved his beard. Mike said he often suspected Donnie of being involved, and when he would ask about any of the incidents, including the Tompkins case, Donnie would not reply. I know Donnie was very nervous about being questioned by the police about Donna, Mike said. And were you with Donnie the night of the fire, playing cards over at Rochelle's? No, I don't remember being there. I don't think I was, said Mike. Also noting that Donnie had expressed a desire to fuck Donna, but that he hadn't gone out with her yet. Donnie did have access to a gas oil mixture, he said, from a can from the mower up at the store. Also stating that David Nell had told him that Donnie had left with her, not referring to Donna when asked, saying Donnie had left with Valerie that night she was attacked, referring to another ongoing investigation. March 25th, at 9.38 a.m., Sergeant Ayers and Detective Marty Bowton drove down to Lewistown to the Fulton County Jail where Donnie was currently being held on other charges pertaining to this woman named Valerie. The officers wanted to speak with Donnie once again about his whereabouts on the night of the double homicide of Donna and Justine Tompkins. 
They met with Donnie in one of the jail's interview rooms and explained their reason for the additional follow-up interview and advised him of his constitutional rights, according to Sergeant Ayers, noting that Donnie stated he understood those rights and proceeded to sign a pre-printed waiver from the department. Detective Boaton asked Donnie if he knew the victim in the fire on South First Avenue, and Donnie responded by saying that he had met her three or four times and had sold her a couch for her new apartment located at that address. Donnie was also asked if he could recall the night before the fire and what happened that evening and the following morning. Donnie said that he had stayed with his girlfriend Rochelle and that he and the following persons were at the home. Ron Nell, Jeff Bennett, Eric Pig, David Nell, his girlfriend, and the next door neighbor named Doug. According to Donnie, the persons mentioned were all playing cards at Rochelle's and he and David Nell left the residence a couple times to go and get alcohol at Twins Liquors and had taken Rochelle's car each time. Donnie added that at around 3.30 or 3.45 in the morning, he gave Nell that ride home, which was on East Walnut Street, and he told the officers that he could not recall if he made a stop before taking Nell home, but said, I might have stopped to get cigarettes. Donnie said he dropped Nell off at his parents' house at East Walnut, and then took a left to head back to Rochelle's, but that he got a flat tire on her car just as he was pulling into the driveway of her home. He stated that the flat was on the front driver's side, and that he attempted to fix the flat by replacing it with a spare, but that when I tried to jack up the car, it rolled out and hit me in the leg. Then what did you do, Donnie? Got back in the car and fell asleep, he said. And tell me again, where did the flat tire occur? Could it have happened down on 2nd by Bork Scrapyard? No, I don't think so. And what time did you get home again? Around 8 because Rochelle's mom came over. And then what did you do after arriving home? Went to bed, but Rochelle got me up around 10.30. Was she waking you for work? Yes, but I called in. Hungover? Yeah. Sounds like you had a good time that night. Yeah. Tell us more about the flat, Donnie. How did you get it fixed? Took it to Phillips 66. About what time? Well, I put the spare on and then I took the flat to Phillips 66. And about what time did you go to Phillips 66? Afternoon. And do you recall who was working? Real big fat guy who works there fixed it. Sergeant Ayers asked Donnie to further explain his involvement with Donna, and Donnie responded by saying that he had only sold her a couch and delivered it to her apartment that last fall with the help of two of his buddies, Rusty Stufflebeam and David Nell. Donnie said that Stufflebeam and Nell helped him haul the couch in Stufflebeam's truck. It was dark out, said Donnie. The couch was heavy. And who unlocked Donna's door? Neither me or Dave, adding that the key was left in the mailbox afterward. He said that they placed the couch in the room just inside the door, but that they couldn't see anything due to it being dark. We used our lighters to see, he said. Was this your first time in Donna's apartment? Yeah. And did you happen to take a look around? No, it was dark. They left and went over to Stufflebeam's home on East Walnut Street, but backtracked at him. Rusty got stuck between the couch and the porch railing. Donnie also said he only knew about the fire once it came out in the paper, but that he had also heard it from Mike Price at Wright's while working together. According to Donnie, he went to work on the 14th, and that is when Mike asked him if he knew about the fire, and if he had gotten paid for the couch he had sold her. Donnie told Sergeant Ayers that Donna had come to Wright's Furniture looking for him while he was out back, near a storage building, and he thought that this was when he and Donna decided on the couch deal, and when he would deliver the couch to her apartment. Donnie also mentioned that Donna called him a couple of times while he was working, but that she never told him she was out of state, and he did not suspect it was a long distance call. Sergeant Ayers asked Donnie, Donnie, is it all possible you may have stopped over at Donna's apartment on the morning of the 13th? And Donnie denied it was possible. And when asked, were you and Donna having sexual relations? No, said Donnie. We never had sex. 
Tony finally agreed to that blood test he had been avoiding, and also a polygraph examination, but stopped short of allowing the officers to decide on a specific time and place, adding, I think I should talk to my lawyer first. The officers thank Donnie for the information, Sergeant Ayers telling Donnie, we will be in touch. One thirty-five p.m. Sergeant Ayers returned to Miss Rochelle Hillmeyer's home for a subsequent interview. Rochelle again stated that Donnie said that the flat tire had been repaired before his arrival home, and she also mentioned that her mother, Jacqueline Day, was present when he had arrived. But Rochelle said she did not recall if Donnie went to bed, stating that he often went into another room when her mother visited. Sergeant Ayers then revealed something he had heard about Donnie having arrived home, the blood stain on his coat, and that he had thrown it in the washing machine. Rochelle, I believe you had seen this bloodstain before Donnie washed his coat, is this true? Rochelle responded stating that Donnie had commented on the stain, but that she was not sure what it was. It could have been blood, she said, but Donnie told me it was transmission fluid. Had you thrown it in the washing machine for him? No, Donnie did it himself, she said. And what color was the jacket, asked Sergeant Air. Dark, same one he was wearing when he got arrested for Valerie, going on to state that the stain was on the upper left chest area on the front of the coat. Have you mentioned the bloodstain to any of your friends? Well, I told, and Rochelle listed the names of all those she had told. When asked about the flat, Rochelle then said, Donnie said he hurt his leg from the jack slipping out, but I kind of felt he was putting it on a little bit. Rochelle then reassured Sergeant Ayers that Donnie and David Nell had left sometime between midnight and 2 a.m., stating that she was still positive Mike Price had not been there that evening but that she did recall a kid named Doug who lived next to Nell on the east side of town. Tell me again, Rochelle, how long had Donnie been living with you? About two months. At 4.20 p.m., Sergeant Ayers got in touch with Detective Bowden and asked him to accompany him back to the Fulton County Jail for the second time that day. The detectives told Donnie that they had returned to speak with him about a minor traffic accident that had occurred at Harper's gas station that he may have been involved with. Donnie was again advised of his rights, according to both officers, and that he then signed another pre-printed waiver, essentially waiving his rights. Faced by the two officers, though flanked, Donnie was first questioned about the accident, and then when re-questioned about the death of Don and Justine, he stated that his girlfriend's mother came over the morning of the 13th, and that he had in fact told her he had seen smoke coming from the area of Bork scrapyard, and that he thought it was coming from a house in that general location. Tony also mentioned he had heard sirens coming from the direction of the smoke that morning. Yeah, I told them I saw smoke and heard sirens, said Donnie. I think her mom was there when I told her shell. Detective Boaten then asked Donnie again what time he took Nell home after the card game, and Donnie replied that it was about 3 in the morning, saying, we drank a few beers in his driveway before I left. According to Donnie, he had the flat when he was returning to Rochelle's after dropping Nell off on East Walnut, this time stating it was in the area of Second and Oak near South Park, and coincidentally enough just one block to the southeast of Donna's apartment. Donnie again said he tried to change the tire but that the jack flew out and hit his leg. Tell us again, then what did you do, Donnie? 
Got back into the car and fell asleep. How long were you out? Till a guy woke me up and asked me if I was okay. Donnie said he had been laying back in the car seat with his head hanging out of the window. Mind you, in the sub-freezing windchill, when the man thought Donnie might need help. Did you know this man? Do you know his name? Did you recognize him? No, huh? Did the man help you with the tire? No, I told him I was fine and he left, and then I put the spare on. There's two in the trunk. And this was at 2nd and Oak, you said, not the driveway? Asked the officers, making eyes, and taking note that Donnie had now claimed that in at least two different locations he had gotten a flat tire on that morning of January the 13th. Also noting that Donnie was vague concerning the details of that morning. The officers then left, intending to take this conflicting information and continue their investigation. Sergeant David Ayers returned to the Hillmeyer residence again, but this time to speak with her mother, Jacqueline Day. Jacqueline said she usually picks up her grandchildren from Rochelle's just before 8 a.m. on school days. Well, one kid has to be at the bus stop by 8, she said, and then I drive the other out to the high school. She then said she remembered the day of the 13th because after she had delivered the kids, she went to Brown Snappy Service for coffee and then to the bank. After that, she said she returned to visit with her daughter. I was pretty angry with my daughter because her car was gone. I pay for it, so I don't like anyone using it but her. She said that after a short while, Donnie had returned in the car and entered the house. As soon as he walked in, he told us there was a big house on first that was on fire and that there was a lot of smoke coming from it. She said that they all stepped outside and could hear sirens from the emergency vehicles, saying, Donnie told us he had seen a fire truck and an ambulance on his way home. Ms. Day, did you happen to drive past Bork Scrapyard taking the kids to school that morning? No, but I did go through the intersection of 2nd and Oak each way. And had you seen your daughter's car anywhere on the side of the road? No, I didn't see it anywhere around there, and I would have. I had my eyes out, seeing Donnie was out in it somewhere. But no, I didn't see it anywhere. March 26, 1993. The headline on the Canton Daily Ledger read, Bale set at $75,000 in attempted sexual assault. The article went on to state, Lewistown, a Canton man who in September of 1983 in a Fulton County Circuit Court received the maximum sentence of five years in prison for aggravated battery is currently being held in Fulton County Jail in lieu of $75,000 bail on new felony charges. Donald R. Bull, 29, of Box 361, has been charged with attempted aggravated criminal sexual assault, aggravated criminal sexual abuse, and two counts of aggravated battery, according to the circuit court documents. He was arrested by Fulton County Sheriff's deputies at 7.55 a.m. Wednesday for allegedly beating and choking a 25-year-old Canton woman at Hewlett Park, located on Route 78, a few miles south of Canton. According to reports, the alleged incident occurred in a vehicle, and the woman was later treated and released at Graham Hospital. Circuit Court Judge John Clerken appointed a public defender to defend Bull. The judge also set bail with the providence that Bull may be freed by posting a bond of 10%, and Bull was scheduled to appear again in Circuit Court at 9 a.m. Wednesday.
Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said today that a search warrant was executed on Wednesday to photograph the suspect's face and body, secure items of his clothing, and secure blood, hair, and fibers from his person. Danner said attempted aggravated criminal assault is a Class 1 felony, punishable by 4 to 13 years in prison. According to court documents, the suspect performed a substantial step toward the commission of that offense, and that told defendant, when refused sex by the victim, by the use of force, caused bodily harm to her, and struck the victim about the face, choked her around the neck, touched and cut her breast, touched other parts of her body, and unzipped her pants. Danner added that since Bull has been convicted of aggravated battery within the last 10 years, extended terms of up to 10 years in prison may be sought against him for the new counts of aggravated battery. In the 1983 case, Bull had testified he had choked a woman because she slapped him. The woman testified he had come to her home shortly before 2 a.m., February 27, 1983, and asked where her husband was. She opened the door to let her dog in, and then she was grabbed by the throat and choked until she was unconscious. She said she regained consciousness later on the back floor of Bull's car and attempted to escape, but was pulled by her hair and choked again until she lost consciousness again. The next time she recalled being conscious, she was being led to a camper trailer in the backyard of a Canton residence. She escaped again and fled to Graham Hospital. A nurse there testified that her face was discolored and she had blood on her face and in her hair. Both the physician and Canton Police Chief Mike Elam, then a Canton Police investigator, testified that her face and neck were both swollen. She remained in the hospital two days later. And on March 27, 1993, the headline of the Peoria Journal Star read, Man acquitted of rape in 91, accused in sex case. 29-year-old allegedly hit, choked, molested woman during struggle. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the court of public opinion is now adjourned for recess. But dear readers, I leave you with but another quote. If you don't hit a newspaper reader between the eyes with your first sentence, there is no need to write a second one. Arthur Brisbane. In one last word, nothing is harder to find than a story that is reluctant to be told. In this, my friends, is one such tale. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. He was born by the roadside in a broken down carriage. Came into life on the run. Found on the doorstep. Of a nearby orphanage, no one saw, no one saw. 
Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.